The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Kwame, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Well, how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, yeah, so I have been involved in the world of negotiation, dealing with conflict for quite a while, I guess about 25, 30 years or so, um, probably longer than I'd like to admit. Uh, and I wear a couple of different hats. I have my own consulting company, so I do a lot of training and getting involved in interesting conflicts and negotiations to kind of help people with that. Um, I also am affiliated with a place called the Program on Negotiation, which is based at Harvard Law School, and I run a project there. Uh, called the Global Negotiation Initiative with William Urey, my colleague. Uh, and we work on a lot of international negotiations and other projects, which is, again, a lot of good fun and very interesting stuff. And then finally, uh, I direct a master's degree program at a smaller school out in Western Massachusetts, where I live, called Baypath University. And it's a uh, MS in leadership and negotiation and, and completely online. And, um, and so folks have... Uh, been really engaged. We've been running that for about seven years and the students really love it and I love doing it. So it's uh, a lot of different hats, but, um, but a lot of fun and interesting work for me to do. That's fantastic. And Josh, my humble friend, please tell them about your book. Go ahead. Let, let them know. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have a book uh, that'll be out very soon uh, in the next week or so called The Book of Real World Negotiations. Uh, and it's a case study book of 25 negotiations from across the spectrum, really. It's domestic business cases, international business cases. There's a couple of cases related to peace processes, uh, three hostage negotiation cases. And what I was trying to do really was um, to use the power of, of real world stories and real world negotiations to help people to really understand what effective negotiation looks like. I think there are a lot of popular myths out there, which I also try to tackle in the book um, and try to talk about what does great negotiation look like and then have people sort of go on a little bit of a treasure hunt with the case studies to find uh, when people are using those skills and those ways of doing things. This is fantastic. And I, I love that format. I really do. And um, I can't wait to, to get into that book. And for this episode, we're going to focus on three things. The first thing we're going to do is start off by talking about the power of stories. And then we're going to bust some common myths about negotiation. And we're going to wrap up by talking about the combination of persistence and problem solving as the key to most of these cases. And uh, the challenge to the audience, of course, is as you listen to this, of course, you are going 
going to hear something that you say, aha, wow, that's definitely something I can use. That's really helpful. And what I'd ask is if you hear that, if you hear that one thing that's really beneficial, um, leave a five-star review. Let other people know that the content here is good. And if you've already done that, which I hope you have, <laughs> then you can subscribe to the podcast. So whenever we come up with a new episode, you get notified. So that is our little negotiation with, with our audience there. So yeah, Josh, let's go ahead and talk about the power of stories. Where should we start? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think most people can relate to stories. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that we overlook, but as kids, you know, that's what, that's what we remember. I know as a kid growing up, there were two figures that uh, I always found very memorable, memorable, Curious George and Dr. Zeus. And, and in many ways, I kind of still live my life by some of the lessons within there about being curious. And, and in fact, I reference um, in the book, the story of the two Zacks who end up coming together and neither one wants to lose. And I use that as a way of explaining that a lot of negotiations and people who negotiate and see negotiation in a win-lose endeavor end up like those two Zacks because they don't move and they won't move. Um, and there are a lot of negotiations that are like that. And people, when people enter negotiation with that mindset, they often you know, think they're negotiating, but once they get stuck, they're kind of done. And so they don't really think, what else can I do here? You know, I had somebody say to me the other day, well, I tried to negotiate. And I said, what'd you do? And they said, well, we, I made an offer and they rejected it and we were too far apart and that was it. And I said, you didn't negotiate. You didn't really go very far at all. So, um, but I think what's really important about stories is they come to mind easily uh, and the lessons come to mind easily. Um, and, and in particular, not only are stories valuable for learning, but I also find that stories are really valuable when you're in the heat of the moment in a negotiation to recall a lesson or to recall a way that you might shift the conversation by saying, let me share an example of how these folks did this. Um, that I think might help us to sort of take a different path or a different avenue. And there's a, one of the stories that I love from the book is an example of, and I think one that most listeners will really resonate with, which is basically an example of a company that was confronted with a sole supplier negotiation situation, which generally speaking is one of the hardest ones that, that exists, right? So the story briefly is that there was a company that was working in China um, and they had to use a particular piece of equipment and the, the equipment was many, many millions of dollars. And they had had one and had been using it for about 15 years, but realized that to do their work well, they needed to get uh, a newer machine. And it turned out that because they were working in China, they couldn't import the machine. And there was only one company in all of China that made this machinery. So my, my colleague shared this story with me. They, they brought him in and, they said to him, look, we um, have approached the other company and they want to charge us um, an exorbitant amount, much more than is reasonable for this because they know they have us sort of over a barrel. And so we need your help. Like, what is it that we're going to do? And he talked to them for a while. And then he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that that company has gone out of business. And they said, uh, okay. And he said, and you have three days to figure out what you're going to do. And I'm going to come back and you're going to tell me how you're still going to meet your interest here. And they kind of looked at him like, you're crazy. Like this is, how could we possibly do that? We already have a bad enough situation and you want to make it worse. Right. 
And, and part of that conversation was also around BATNA, right? And BATNA, for those of you who don't know, is your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And the whole idea is if you can't reach agreement somewhere, what's your BATNA? And in this case, they didn't have one, right? Because um, it was a sole supplier deal. So my friend left and the procurement team got together and started talking and they started to brainstorm and they started to think, what are we gonna do here? I mean, this guy's crazy, um, but we've gotta come up with a plan. And they started to think, could we you know, refurbish the machinery? That didn't work. Could we um, you know, somehow, some way, you know, find another solution? And one of, during the brainstorm, one of the procurement team folks said, hey, I wonder if anybody has purchased this machinery in the last say four or five years and maybe isn't using it anymore. And they said, well, let's start researching and seeing what we can find. And it turned out that they found a company in Mongolia um, who was, uh, who had purchased this equipment. So they approached them and they said, look, we're, here's the situation. We're interested in buying it. And it turned out that that company had stopped doing what they were doing before and they had this machinery and they wanted to sell it. So now they had a bat, right? They could buy this used equipment that would work. Um, but more to the point, they could use it as leverage to go back to this company in China and say, look, we want to do business with you. We, you know, we want to buy a new equipment. We want to have a service contract, all of those things. And yet uh, you're just, you know, your price is unrealistic. And, and, you know, if you're not going to agree to that, then we've got an alternative, you know, our preference is to work with you. And that's ultimately what happened. And it turned out that they were able to negotiate much more effectively. The company in China who sold the equipment did their own investigation to make sure that, you know, the folks weren't uh, lying to them. But when they found out that there was that reality, the company came back down to something much more reasonable. So when you look at something like that, and that story I think is really powerful because when people are confronted with a, a, a significant power asymmetry, they usually just throw up their hands and say, I hope they'll just give me something. Right. And in this case, with some creative thinking, with um, some challenging of assumptions, you get a very different outcome and a very different story. Right. See, this is so fascinating. I, I love this example. Um, and the timing's perfect because uh, this morning I was presenting to the Army's Defense Acquisition University. And uh -huh. so it's really interesting because, of course, they're, they're in procurement just like everybody else. But the things that they're procuring are... Um, they call them weapons of lethality. <laughs> so <laughs> everything right. for, for the army that they need in order to, to defend us. And um, one of the things we were talking about was creativity. So what is it that we can do to be creative to make these deals work? Because the more paths to victory you have, the more likely you are to achieve victory. But sometimes when you see a threat just psychologically speaking, when we see a threat, we develop a little bit of tunnel vision. And to, your, to the point of your story, the company that was trying to negotiate and they recognized, hey, I'm dealing with a single supplier who's trying to gouge us. Um, they recognize that's a threat and they see that as the only potential path to victory. And so what your, what your colleague was able to do was introduce a hypothetical situation. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, there right. was no other option. What would we do? And so sometimes hypotheticals are the best way to get people to think create, uh, creatively in these negotiations. Asking great questions to people on your team who are developing a little bit of tunnel vision can do it. And then even with your counterpart, sometimes I like to use hypothetical situations, mm -hmm. whether it's a negotiation with opposing counsel or for me as a mediator with the other side, it helps people to, to feel a little bit more 
um, uh, I guess, less defensive when it comes to entertaining alternate possibilities because it's less threatening. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Mm, yeah, I agree. And I think also the other, another piece to that, which I think is really important, and I don't know if we talk about it nearly enough, is the assumptions we make. Um, because assumptions, you know, really hinder our thinking. Uh, and, and sometimes I, I think that's probably the biggest value that trainers and people from the outside and who come in can offer is, is a challenge to those assumptions of, well, we've always done it that way, or um, it's just not possible. And when somebody, say, a naive consultant like me or you comes in and says, well, why is that the case? Um, I've had a lot of times where people have said, huh, you know what, I'm not sure why that's the case. It's just because we've always done it that way. Um, and I think that, you know, that can be really limiting in people's mindset and the way they approach things. Absolutely. And I, I tell people all the time, one of the keys to success in negotiation is the humility that it takes to ask what could be considered a stupid question, mm -hmm. right? Because I tell people all the time, I said, see, I'm not from your industry. So I am completely ignorant to what it takes to be successful and, and, and all of that within your particular industry, but I know the, the negotiation uh, aspects of it. So why is it this way? Right. Educate me, I literally don't know. And um, the, what I've recognized is that sometimes people don't even recognize when they're making assumptions. So they just think they, they are, it's difficult for them to recognize the, the distinction between a thought, a true conclusion, an objective analysis, and an assumption, because a lot of times they feel almost the same way. And it takes somebody from the outside asking a question in order to get you to think and realize, oh, this is an assumption. And I think that speaks to the value of taking the time to negotiate with yourself as well taking the time to ask yourself those important questions to see why I think the way that I think. And sometimes just asking yourself those types of questions helps you to be more creative and think outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and I think a lot of, as you say, a lot of your negotiation is with you. 
Um, you know, my colleague William Urey wrote a great book a couple of years ago called Getting to Yes with Yourself. And, and you know, he really talks about how sometimes the, the you know, the, the toughest negotiator is the one staring you back in the mirror. <laughs> Absolutely. So, it's yeah. so true. It's so true. This is great. And one other thing too, for the listeners, um, I always tell them about the free guides that we have. And if they go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, they can get access to all of our guides, general negotiation guides, car negotiation, introverts guide to negotiation. It's like 15 plus. But we did one about three years ago that I don't talk about as much. And it's a guide to telling great stories. Mm-hmm. And so it walks people through how they can tell an effective story. And I, I love bringing this up, Josh, because because in, in your example, what you can recognize is that storytelling is a persuasive technique. If you come to the table armed with a good story and you can use it at the right time, you can persuade people because they, their defenses might be up and in place when it comes to the facts that you're trying to provide them with and the different points that you're trying to make. But I think about stories almost like a, they're like a Trojan horse for persuasion. Everybody gets excited when you say, oh, I'm going to tell you a story. Well, great. Let me get my popcorn. I'll listen. <laughs> they, yeah. they absorb the message with uh, less critical thought and it makes them more willing to move. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, it really actually does change the dynamic. Just saying, let me tell you a story. And then from there on, you know, it's almost as if you can see people's demeanor change. Um, and so I think not only is it a story to learn, but it's this tactic actually in many ways in negotiation to help change the dynamic between people. So, yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's move on to the second one, busting common myths about negotiation. Oh, this is great. So tell us more about that. Well, there's a lot of common myths and I'm sure you've come across them. I mean, my, you know, one of my favorites is to, is really that, that I feel like compromise. A lot of people think compromise is synonymous with negotiation. And, and for me, I think that's incredibly limiting thinking. Um, I was talking to somebody about a month ago and I was sharing a little bit about the book and they said, well, you know, to me, the best negotiation is when everybody leaves unhappy, a little bit unhappy. And I said, why would you think that? Like, that's really limiting. And I didn't want to be condescending at all, but I just said, you know, if you go in with that, like what, you know, what is it that you, I can tell you what you're going to come out with, which is um, that sort of outcome. So for me, and, I, and what I often will say to folks is, you know, sometimes compromise is necessary, but it really should be the last stop on the train, not the first one. You know, the first should be creativity. It should be thinking differently. It should be problem solving. I mean, and I think that when people change their mindset and they see the other person and they realize they have to see the other negotiator as a problem solving partner, um, they realize that, you know, compromise may not really help you. And it certainly doesn't help you over the long term. Um, and there's a, one of the stories that I really like from the book and one of the concepts that I've resonated very deeply with is a, an idea called post-settlement settlement that I think highlights um, the problem with compromise. So post-settlement settlement, which is kind of the least sexy name you could probably think of, um, was created by a guy named Howard Rafe, a really nice man at Harvard Business School, genius, really brilliant individual. But he came up with this idea because he basically said, I think that the vast majority of people when it comes to negotiation are compromising prematurely. So they're leaving all kinds of value on the table, right? So he basically sort of set up a shop and he said, bring me your deals. And if I can make it better for not just one of you, but both of you, you know, you'll give me a percentage of what we find. Okay, fair enough, right? So, uh, and in most of the cases that he did over a number of years, he would find value. For people because they hadn't 
brainstormed. They hadn't thought creatively. They had just rushed to compromise. And people really rush to compromise when the situation gets difficult, right? When you come across a hard problem and you can't solve it, too often people just say, well, let's just split the difference and move on without really saying, wait a minute. Like, maybe we ought to see if we can find other things of value. So one of the stories in the book picks up on this notion of post-settlement settlement. So I was doing a training for a recycling company out in the Midwest, um, in Illinois, somewhere. I won't say more than that. Um, and the, you know, the training was going well. There was about 75 people there. It was a company of a couple hundred people. But I started to talking to these two associates named Zena and, and James. And they were just telling me how they had, they had just renegotiated a, another two-year deal with a, a, a service provider. Uh, that worked with the recycling folks. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, and, and they said, yeah, we had a two-year deal, so we pretty much just re-upped with them. And I said, okay, um, have you signed on the dotted line yet? And they said, no. I mean, we have a verbal arrangement, but you know, we just did this yesterday, so, but we're really excited because we think it's a good deal. And I said, you may be right that it's a good deal, but is it the best deal? And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's this idea called post-settlement settlement. And the idea is to ask the simple question, is there a way that we could make this better for both of us, right? And so it, this happened to be during lunch when they came up and talked to me. So I saw them kind of scurry over to a whiteboard and start charting out, like what else might we ask for? And what else might this other company want um, that we didn't really explore? And we didn't think to explore because we thought, hey, it worked well, well, let's just keep going with it. And so they came back at the end of lunch and they had a list of two or three things for the other folks that they came up with and, and two or three things that they could think of to ask. Some around, you know, could a payment be done earlier in the year, earlier in the month for cash flow purposes? And another one had to do with delivery schedule, right? So I said, well, why don't you go and ask them? What do you have to lose? And I happened to be flying home that night. So I said, email me and let me know what happens. And so they, they did, they reached out to their counterpart and they said, we just wanna ask you a question. Is there anything that we could add to this deal to make it better for you guys? And the guy's like, I've never had anybody ask me that question. Let me, you know, let me think about it. And he came back and turned out that adding another year to the length of the contract was beneficial for them. And then also changing the delivery date work you know, for them was important because they were, all of their deliveries was, were early in the month. And if they could push some back later, that would help them. So, they said, okay, well, we think we can do those. We'd like to ask you for these things in return. Um, and, and by the way, the, the, the length of the contract was actually beneficial to them as well. They didn't know it, but it was. So they asked for a couple of these other things as well. And in the end, they sent me an email and they said, you know, we just found four or five things that we would not have had in this agreement if we hadn't stepped back and asked that question. So we're always gonna do that from now on. We're always gonna be thinking where are the sources of value? And so from my point of view, like you don't lose anything by asking that question, right? And what you're doing really is you're challenging assumptions and you're saying, have we really found all the value there is to be had in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't, just as a, an aside, I don't know why the post-settlement settlement, settlement uh, idea hasn't caught on more widely because it's, it's really brilliant. And yeah. it's something in, in my trainings and when I'm doing the, uh, my uh, teaching my 
courses at the MBA level and law school level. Sometimes mm-hmm. I pop in and I see the simulation happening and I see people are still going 45 minutes, an hour, people are still going. But then for some groups, after 20 minutes, they're done. And I'm, I'm, I say, you're, you're done already? <laughs> I said, yeah, we got an agreement. It was really good. I was like, yeah, you're not done yet. So here's the rule. <laughs> okay, so you, can, you have to continue the negotiation and you have to, you can change the agreement only if you make it better, but you can't make it worse. Fair? Okay, great. And every time they come up with something much better, they're a lot more creative. And I think in those situations, once they already understand that a deal has already been created, even the people who are the most hard-nosed negotiators are willing to let their defenses down just a little bit and say, okay, I'll I'll be a little bit more creative. Maybe we could do X, Y, Z, right? They're a little bit more open to it. And then it it puts you in a better position to advance. But but I agree, Josh, a lot of times we just leave money on the table. um, because we're not willing to push. And it might be a, a lack of confidence in our skills where we mm-hmm. say, all right, I got a deal. That's all I need. I'm done. Um, it might be fear of pushing a little bit too hard. Maybe you're yep. afraid of jeopardizing the relationship, those type of things. I've mm-hmm. noticed it happens a lot when two parties are friends with each other because mm-hmm. they don't want to jeopardize the, that friendship. Is this good enough for you? Great. I'm not going to push it. Um, mm-hmm. And it reminds me of something that uh, David Goggins once said. He was a uh, former Navy SEAL, really extreme guy. If you ever want to feel inadequate, read his book, <laughs> <laughs> You Can't Hurt Me. Uh, so intense. But uh-huh. one of the things he says is that we need to earn the right to say it's impossible. And a lot of times we quit too early and we don't push hard enough and explore the true possibilities just in our personal life. And I think the same is true in in negotiations. We want to push a little bit harder, still, of course, being mindful of the relationship and being respectful, but Mm -hmm. um, there's a little bit more value that can be had. And if we could do it, especially in a collaborative way, I think, why not? Yeah. And I think you put your finger on why it works because you already have a deal, right? So it's like, well, I guess the pressure's off. And I think that's in, in many ways, you know, when you, I know as we've been talking, you know, you work with a lot of parties and if you can get them into that brainstorming problem solving mode, you know, that's, you're doing that and it works because the pressure's off because I don't feel like I have to defend every little thing um, that we're saying or that everybody's making an offer every time we speak, you've taken the pressure away, right? So now people can just think and think creatively and say, huh, if the sky was the limit, what would we do here, right? And it's those kinds of things. And I think that's why, as you say, why it works is you already have a deal, right? There's one laying in front of you. So to ask the question, well, is there any way we could make this better? You know, it's disarming. It's, and it sort of lends itself to a creative conversation. Absolutely. And, and there's another concept. I forget exactly what it was called. Um, you know, it's similar to this. Maybe it was your, your colleague who, who made this up too. I forget which book it was. Um, but exploring what happened to the deal if you did not get the deal. And mm. so just saying, listen, I'm not coming here to try to renegotiate anything. I know we, you already passed on the deal. But out of curiosity, mm. um, what was the main thing that, that prevented you from coming to an agreement? Or what was something that I personally could have done differently that would have made you feel more comfortable. And then they share those hidden interests. Again, they say, well, the deal's done, no longer a threat. And then they say, well, I really needed this and that and the other thing. And maybe they were holding that close to their chest. And then you say, oh, that's really what it was? I didn't know that. Now that I know that, if you're interested, I can do X, Y, Z, if you're able to do ABC. 
really? All right. Now they're back to the table. And I think it's really interesting to recognize just how much work can be done and how much more value can be created once people kind of let their guard down and they think that it's done either we got a deal or there wasn't a deal. But once they get that relaxed feeling of safety that comes with the the feeling of being done, um, Mm -hmm. people open back up. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, my colleague uh, at, at Harvard Business School, a guy named Mike Wheeler, a really great guy, wrote a book called The Art of Negotiation. And, and fascinating, because in that book, he basically makes the case that to be an effective negotiator, you have to learn the skills of improv, which I love, like, because it's all about agility and, and adaptability and things like that. But he also talks about, you know, the real, real importance of, of doing a postmortem on a negotiation. And even if you don't get to that new deal, you still learn what it was that, that was the real block. Because a lot of us walk away from negotiations and think to ourselves, hmm, it really felt like there was something there. And I, I'm kind of puzzled as to why it didn't happen. You know, we, um, none of us have a perfect record in negotiation. It's a little bit like baseball. It isn't going to happen. Um, if, you hit, and if you're batting three or 400, you know, you're doing really well. And, and so, but I think it's when, you know, I've, often thought after the fact, I wonder what really was going on there. I know there was something there that I was missing, but, you know, didn't find it. And when you do those postmortems and really sort of analyze it, and even if you have the opportunity to talk to the other, it's incredibly valuable um, learning, you know, what, what happened there and sort of helps you to remember that for the future. Absolutely. Well, great. Let's transition into that third point, the combination mm-hmm. of persistence and problem solving. So tell us more about that one. Well, let me, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so this story is, I think, a really great example of persistence and resilience. And so the story actually is from a, a hostage negotiation scenario. It's actually it was a crisis negotiation because it wasn't, the person didn't have a hostage. Um, and actually the title of, in, in, of this particular case study in the book is called Listening Them Down from a Tree. Um, and what happened was basically that there was this, this story happened in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And what happened was there was a husband, Arthur, and his wife, Mary, who were native Canadians. Um, and they were in their mid to late 30s. Um, and they were also meth addicts. Um, and Arthur and Mary had a, what, what they considered a nice life together. Um, but... Mary finally got to a point where she just couldn't do it anymore. Like she felt like they were going to run their life into the ground and Arthur wasn't there. And Mary really pleaded with him to check himself into rehab with her so that they could get clean and live, you know, a better life, a different life. Um, And Arthur just wasn't having it. And so Mary said, look, I'm going with or without you. I love you, but you know, this is, I can't do this anymore. So she left and went to check herself into a rehab clinic on the outskirts of Calgary. And uh, Arthur was angry because he felt like they had a beautiful life together. And he wanted to teach Mary a lesson. He was still messed up a bit uh, as he was making this decision. So he went to his garage and he uh, found a rope. And he put it in his car and he decided he was going to drive. He was going to drive to the outskirts of this uh, rehab clinic and he was going to hang himself from a tree to, to show Mary how she had ruined their lives. Okay. And um, he had decided, and, and he knew that there was this big tree outside her window because she had called him two or three times that day trying to encourage him to come because she really wanted him to come. 
So he gets there and he's, you know, determined to do this, determined to teach Mary a lesson. And as he's, uh, as the sun is setting and he's trying to climb up the tree, et cetera, somebody walks by and says, Hey, what are you doing, buddy? And the guy's like, none of your business. Uh, and that this young guy knew something was wrong. So he called, he called the police and the police in turn called their crisis negotiator, this guy, Gary, and they, basically filled Gary in on the story. So Gary rushed to, to the scene. And um, when he got there, this was in late October. So in Calgary, it's starting to get pretty cold that time of year, et cetera. And when he got there, he said to Arthur, you know, what's going on, friend? Tell me what the deal is. Like, how can I, you know, get you to not do this? And, and Arthur on numerous occasions said, the only way I'm coming out of this tree is in a body bag. So Gary had confronted that before, right? He tried a number of different avenues. This is where that persistence comes in of, of thinking there's got to be a way. And in the back of his mind, he kept, Gary kept thinking, I'm pretty sure Arthur doesn't want to kill himself because he would have done it already if he had. So at one point, Gary says, listen, friend, um, there's got to be some way to get you out of this tree. What is it? And he said, I'll tell you what, Arthur says to Gary, I'll tell you what, if you can guess my native Canadian name, I'll come down. So Gary, of course, takes a step back and thinks, how in the world am I going to do that? And he says, tell me what, tell, give me five to 10 minutes to try to think a little bit about what it might be. So Arthur says, fine, you got 10 minutes. Gary walks back to his car, he calls the dispatcher and he said, I want you to call Mary. Don't tell her what you're doing, but you need to find out what Arthur's um, native Canadian name is. So the dispatcher calls the rehab center. They get Mary on the line. She says, his, his name is Running Buffalo. Calls Gary back. Gary goes to the bottom of the tree and says, okay, friend, I think your name is Running Buffalo. The second that Gary told that to Arthur, he scurried down the tree as fast as he could and collapsed into Gary's arms. So as I said, it was getting cold. We're now past midnight. Gary takes him to the ambulance and he says, so Arthur, I gotta understand, what, what was with the question around me asking your native Canadian name? Like, why? And he said, because basically, if I came out of the tree, in my mind, I would have lost and I was not prepared to lose. And by getting you to guess my native Canadian name, it put me and you on square footing. It enabled me to save face. And and, you know, what's really interesting as I talked to Gary more after he shared the story with me, he said, you know, that a lot for a lot of people, um, when it comes to hostage negotiations or crisis negotiations, a lot of people, they get themselves into a situation and they don't know, they don't want to be there, but they don't have a way out and they need a way out. And he said, one of the things that happens is that, you know, the mythology around hostage negotiation is that, you know, the, the hostage taker thinks that they're going to get Arnold Schwarzenegger, as Gary told me, but they end up getting Mr. Rogers. Because, because what the whole goal of, of finding a solution in these kinds of situations is building rapport, is gaining enough trust with that person that they won't be harmed if they come out and that they can come out in that way. They don't use the term surrender anymore, um, but that they can come out safely and they can come out with some way of saving face. Like it turns out that saving face becomes a really critical component to all of this. Now, if Gary had just rushed there and said, get out of that tree right now, 
you, you know, who knows what, have hap what would have happened. Um, but through that sort of persistence and sort of a resiliency mindset and this notion of knowing that rapport is going to speak to him and give him a way to come down, he was able to craft an agreement that, that saved his life. Uh, and, and, you know, and um, I, I, as I understand it, you know, went on to also get cleaned up as well. Wow. Wow. That is a fantastic story. Really creative too. But again, it, it showed the, uh, the, the power of persistence. Uh, like you mentioned here, it, you, it, that didn't come, uh, that solution didn't come quickly, right? Mm -hmm. It takes mm -hmm. some time. And I think when it comes to being an effective negotiator, there's a little bit of cognitive and emotional stamina that it requires that people often underestimate. I think so. And, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting because um, I've often found and I've often felt like negotiation would be such a great show on TV because it has all of those things. It's got conflict, it's got suspense, it's got, and yet very few people realize that, right? Most people think it's sort of just this process that is done in just sales or procurement or whatever, but the reality is we're doing it everywhere all the time. And, and it's fascinating when you, notice the dynamics and when you see what happens and this is why for me i connect this back to the whole idea of story the of story because negotiations follow a story arc right that basically you get started you hit some kind of an apex where you know maybe a solution looks like it's going to happen maybe it doesn't can you pull it back from the brink etc and then there's some culmination that leaves a very valuable lesson um, and i think that's why i was so interested in writing this book because I've just seen when you share these stories, light bulbs go off for people and they stay with them. Absolutely, man, that's, that's fascinating. And for you, what would you say is the most impactful or memorable negotiation you've been in in your career when it comes to something that you've been involved in yourself? You know, there's a lot of them and it's funny because um, I would say that some of them have been maybe less glamorous. Um, on, on some level, they've taken a long time. You know, there's been that persistence. Um, and I was patient about what I was doing. Um, and so I think, you know, there's some of those that, that I feel like I knew that this was something that would happen if I was patient um, and, and was able to kind of work with parties over time. Um, actually, I, I worked on a project in the Middle East for 10 years. Um, something called the Abraham path, which required a tremendous amount of negotiations. And there were some really fascinating ones. I mean, um, so the idea of the Abraham path, just very briefly, is um, after sort of the United States went into Iraq, um, William Urey and some colleagues and folks started to think, you know, as negotiation conflict resolution professionals, is there something that we can do? Because this gap between the United States or the West and the Muslim world in particular the Middle East was growing and getting wider and wider. And so was there something that we could do to try to bridge that gap a little, you know, something like a people to people kind of diplomacy project or something. And the conversation started going toward this idea of, is there a figure that both places revere? And it turned out that Abraham was the figure they landed on. And so the idea became, could you recreate the root of Abraham or dust the footprints off of Abraham's journey um, and use it as a way for people around the world to actually come and walk and engage with people um, along that route. And so that was back in 2003, 2004. And 
by 2008, nine, we actually had people walking. And, but the creation of the path stretched from negotiations at the governmental level with foreign ministries and ministries of tourism to the municipal level, all the way down to villages and meeting with people who might be homestay families and have people sitting there. And I remember two, I'll, I'll share with you if it's okay, two short stories. So, so when we would go into these villages, it could be in Turkey. So the, the path stretches from Iraq up to Turkey, down through Syria, Jordan, Palestinian communities, Israel, and all the way into Egypt, uh, as well as Saudi Arabia. Um, and there's over uh, about a thousand miles of path right now that are in use. Well, they were in use before COVID. Um, they're still, you know, they're still there waiting to be used again. But one of the one of the things that we used to have to do a lot was go into these villages and sit with the folks um, and try to explain what this was about and, and why they might want to be involved. You know, there was an economic benefit that people would come and stay with you and would pay you. But we'd also have to drink goat's yogurt. And goat's yogurt is, if you think about goat cheese, right, which tends to be kind of pungent, goat yogurt is a multiple of at least 10. And it's un <laughs> and it's unpasteurized, so it's brutal. Like it does every time every sip is a another day um, where you're not going to be feeling well. And so there were a lot of those negotiations that we had to go through to try to, um, you know, and you couldn't refuse it because it would be an insult. So so we did a lot of that slowly but surely over time. I got a little better. That's one story. The the other story that required some creativity was that we were trying to figure out how to launch this. And basically, you know, we were negotiation folks. So we had to find partners along the route who would sustain this over time. We were just trying to infuse the idea and catalyze it. And I remember when we met with our Turkish colleagues, they said, look, we should do a tourism conference. That's what people here understand. They know that, right? So we ended up having a hundred people from around the world come and do this tourism conference. And we were going to do a walk into a place called Haran, which is, um, the place where Abraham heard the call to go forth, right? And there was a village about 15 kilometers away and they agreed to be the starting point for this group of hundred people. And my colleague who I was working with, a Turkish woman, amazing woman named Arzu, she called me one day and she said, hey, the, the, the chief of the village wants to know how many goats he should slaughter for the hundred people for the lunch before we walk. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, like we're not in the business of slaughtering goats, like that's not gonna work. And she's like, yeah, I don't even think he's got that many goats. And, um, and, it, and we, so we started to think, I said, listen, we, we gotta do something here. We can't, this can't be, this can't happen. And we recalled about three months before we had met a tour operator said, you know, if you ever need any meals, like for people who are walking, let me know, like I can help you with that. And so we reached out to him and said, hey, is there any chance you'd be able to do this? You know, we could certainly pay you for the meals or whatever, because we couldn't say no to the chief. Otherwise it would be a real um, insult. And so we had to find a way. And so we said, you know, we, we came up with this alternative solution of these box lunches. And we said, listen, you know, uh, we really appreciate, appreciate the offer. It's very Abrahamic of you. Um, if you wanted to slaughter one goat um, in an honorary kind of way, we understand that, but we've already set up this scenario with a, you know, this tour operator, et cetera. So uh, it took a lot of creative thinking and, and a lot of fear that we would um, eliminate the goat population. <laughs> <laughs> quite wow. quite a few. So, there, so there's a lot of those that are not, you know, they're not so high profile. I mean, there's some that are more, but those are the ones that stay with me just because they're so 
um, they were so real, they were so human, they were so interesting in many ways. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm glad I asked. That, that was great. That was really great. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. Before you go, two things I'd like you to do. Number one, uh, leave the audience with a challenge that you believe that would help them to be better negotiators. And number two, sell them on the book. <laughs> if they haven't already been sold. <laughs> well, I hope so. I don't know. I think I'm running out of ways to sell them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, in terms of a challenge, you know, I think what I usually say to folks is there is a solution here. You just haven't found it yet. So when you're ready to give up, stay. Like stay and think about what can I do differently that I haven't tried. Um, I really genuinely believe that, that I've seen very few negotiations that don't have a solution. Um, it's just that people have not been persistent and resilient enough and they are limiting their thinking. So you know, even asking those kinds of questions that we've been talking about, like what's the craziest thing we could do right now to solve this problem or to, to you know, come up with a negotiated agreement. And I think that, that that will help to unstick people. And I think, I mean, just in terms of selling the book, you know, the stories that I've told, there's a lot more in there um, like this. And I think if you read them, you'll remember them. And I think, I really do believe that people will come away kind of viewing negotiation differently if they don't think about it the way you and I do, you know, we're, we're kind of obsessed with it and we think about it a lot, but I think the average person doesn't. And I, I really hope that when people put this down, they'll say, ah, now I think I get why people are so interested in negotiating and, and what really good negotiators do. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. We really appreciate it. Good luck with everything you do and especially with the book. Thank you so much as well. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.